If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for May 19th, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day. From a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down, our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's where you can find all of the past episodes of the World According to Zig podcast. And I urge you to go to freespeechbroadcasting.com for the uh, easiest way to access our other podcast, which we do twice a week, which is the Individual One podcast, which is focusing on the presidency of Donald Trump. So most, although not all, of the Donald Trump-related news will be exclusively on the Individual One podcast, which you can find either via my Twitter handle or uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com. Today's episode of the World According to Zig podcast is going to be a little bit different for a couple of reasons. Uh, we're going to do Ask John Anything, which we've not done in a very, very long time. For, for the 13 people who are a, a very well acquainted with my long and um, very mediocre media career, the Ask John Anything segment has quite a history. I was actually fired over the Ask John Anything segment uh, back in Louisville, Kentucky, and then sued for like a couple million dollars over something that occurred during the episode of Ask John Anything that resulted in my firing, although I was rehired by the very same company here in Los Angeles and ended up meeting my wife and getting married and having two kids. So I guess it all turned out in the end, although you know, we might want to hold judgment. I'm sure my wife wants to hold judgment on that until it's all said and done. But, uh, you know, I, I should probably do ask John anything more often, but there's just been so much going on. I just thought, okay, uh, this is a pretty good week to do and ask John anything. And so I uh, asked people for their submissions and I got bombarded. I frankly got more submissions than I anticipated. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to all of them. If I don't, I will uh, attempt to do this again at another date in the near future. I did expect that a lot of the questions were going to relate to leaving Neverland, uh, the uh, HBO fake documentary about Michael Jackson's alleged sexual abuse, which we've been focused on for the last couple of months. And I was not surprised that many of the questions are related to that. I will try to mix those in as we go. 
Part of why this was, uh, I decided this was a good time to do it, is that someone asked me a question about last week's podcast, <laughs> where at uh, at some point during my uh, diatribe, I explained why I am different than most commentators. And part of why I am different than most commentators is that I really don't care about adulation from the public. I don't care about money very much. I don't care about fame hardly at all because I'm married. And, you know, there's, that doesn't do any good when you're, you know, when you're married because, frankly, the most important or from a man's perspective, the, the greatest benefit of being famous is that women that would normally not have sex with you will have sex with you. So that doesn't matter to me now that I'm married. And because I don't like people, human adulation is of no value to me. I mean, I, there are only a couple people on the planet whose respect I really value. And, and that's because I don't like human beings. I think humanity is exceedingly flawed. Homo sapiens are a horrible species. And so why would I live my life wanting affirmation from humans that I don't know and who I don't like, don't respect, don't think highly of. Because I think the average human being is crap. I think the average human is not honest, not smart, not courageous, is not interesting, not talented, has very little going for them. And, and I'm hardly perfect. And that's by, by the way, that's why I know the average human being is not worthy of, of praise or caring about whether they have admiration for you because I know myself, I'm very mediocre, but I am a hell of a lot better than the vast majority of human beings that I've come in contact with. So I was asked, why do you hate humanity? So I guess that's probably the best place to start off on this edition of Ask John Anything. It's a, obviously, it's an answer I could probably spend numerous episodes of The World According to Zig discussing. But the short answer to that is, I have lived a very, very interesting life where I've met a lot of people in a lot of highly unusual circumstances. A lot of people who are considered to be the cream of the crop, the best of the best, people who are thought of very, very highly by society. And I have found almost all of them to be corrupt in some way. Now, that doesn't mean I'm a, you know, I expect people to be perfect because no one is perfect and I'm far, far, far from perfect. But the, I have found the average human being, even among the so-called elite, to be um, not worthy of praise, not worthy of admiration, not worthy of giving a damn about what they think of you, especially when you don't even know them. And I've also been screwed over by some of the allegedly best people in the world. Uh, best, not maybe in the world, but certainly within the societies that I was living. I've been screwed over many, many times by people who I, I was at the time shocked by. I'm not shocked now because I expect that. I expect anyone is capable of screwing you over because people will always do what's in their self-interest. In fact, the only way you should really trust a relationship, and this sounds cynical as hell and depressing as hell, but it's true, is if you have leverage over that person and that person knows that you have leverage over them. That's about the only relationship you should really trust. And even then you should be wary because they might be too dumb to fully understand it. 
or they might change their mind or something else might happen. But the bottom line is people are not to be trusted. And that's why I don't like humanity, because I'm someone who really believes in the truth, who is honest to a fault, who is incredibly loyal, uh, and um, who will not do something <laughs> uh, that's in my self-interest if I think it's also wrong. Again, hardly perfect. But uh, I, in my experience, and in my 52 years, I have been in situations that have been far, far, far more um, able to discern the nature of humanity than most people. I put myself in weird circumstances. I put myself in foxholes with a lot of people, and you find out a lot about people in a foxhole. And in the vast majority, not all, but in the vast majority of cases, what you find out is that those people are, are not worthy of giving a crap about. And so that's why, in the short run, in the short answer, why I do not like humanity. All right, now to more specific questions. Uh, Jason via Twitter asks, I know it's a ways off, but what are you going to do with the individual one podcast if Trump loses in 2020? I don't even know if I'm going to be able to do the individual one podcast through the 2020 election. I have no idea that is going to have mostly to do with what the global story network decides to do with their network as it's just beginning now. Uh, basically individual one podcast is the first podcast uh, to get up and running within the Global Story Network. So it basically depends on what the Global Story Network decides to do with podcasting in general. And so 2020 seems a long way off. I would love to continue to do this podcast and the 20 and the individual one podcast through the 2020 election. But I got to tell you, it's funny that uh, Jason asks, what am I going to do if Trump loses? I'm more concerned about what I'm going to do if Trump wins. Because if Trump wins, I believe I will probably retire from public life. That's not a threat. That's not like a, I'm going to move to another country if Trump wins again. It has nothing to do with it. That's just me deciding, you know what, at that point, there's really no point to me continuing on. There's no point for me to be screaming you know, about when no one's listening, when it doesn't matter. And we will have, if Trump wins re-election, we will have left the gravitational of the pull of the rational earth to such a degree that there's no going back. And at that point, you might as well just, you know what? Uh, to use the, the old cliche that uh, Bobby Knight got um, uh, destroyed over using, uh, when rape is inevitable, uh, you might as well just sit back and enjoy it. Uh, well, in a weird way, if Trump uh, wins re-election, well, I'm not going to keep banging my head against the wall, especially when I'm getting paid no money to do it. So I will probably, again, you never know what's going to happen until it happens. But my guess is if Trump wins, um, that'll probably be the last you hear of me. <laughs> Whether it's writing, uh, podcasting, whatever it is. I mean, I, again, who knows what might what might have occurred between now and then. Uh, to give me some other uh, passion to continue to have a voice regarding. But um, politically, at least, if Trump wins, that's probably the end of, of my uh, political commentary. Uh, and Jason also asked, does being on Twitter help you with your writing or does it get in the way? It's both. It's very time-consuming. I spend way too much time on Twitter. The worst part is that I actually feel compelled uh, out of my conscience to respond to people, which is a really dumb idea because you, you think humanity in general is bad. Uh, humanity on Twitter is way worse. That, that's the worst of the worst. 
And I have kind of changed my policy towards that. I still respond to people if they have legitimate inquiries on Twitter, but especially the Trump tards, I've mostly just muted all the Trump tards. I have, I have a hierarchy. First you get muted, then you get blocked. Uh, and I would say most of the Trump tards, which I still get a lot of Trump tard reaction, uh, have been muted to this point. And so that's uh, because I can't see them. Uh, if I can't see them, then I don't respond. So that kind of has taken care of that. But it does help a little bit in that you're able to uh, keep abreast of what's happening in the news more quickly, get reaction to it. That helps a little bit. So if you know what you're doing, it can help. But by and large, it's probably a negative because it does take an awful lot of time. Uh, Kamer X, I don't even know who Kamer X is, on uh, Twitter asks a bunch of questions, uh, most of which are far too detailed to get into uh, on this episode of uh, World According to Zig. But uh, they do ask, why do you often fall out with your peers and other industry professionals? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, obviously, each circumstance is, um, is unique and has its own reasons. But I would say that the, the number one reason is that I don't buy into the game, into the scam. See, this is all a scam. Everything in the news media is now a scam especially talk radios. Talk radio is a total scam. That's been a large part of my career. And so if you're not accepting of the scam and you're not beholden to you know what keeps people in the scam, if you don't want to think of it as a scam, think of it as the mob, all right? So if, and I've already referenced this with regard to my view of humanity. Because I'm not motivated that much by money, or by fame, and I don't care about adulation, and my position doesn't matter to me. I've been fired so many times. It doesn't matter. It, I don't care. I don't care. I've already accepted who I am. I've already accepted that my career is effectively over. I, I've referenced myself as a dead man talking before, and, and which gives me the freedom to actually tell you the truth. And as long as some people care about that, then, you know, and I have the option to do it, I'll probably still do it. But barely, because I don't care that much. I'm passionate about the issues, but I just don't care. And so when you don't care about making sure that the scam continues or that the, the mob doesn't get broken up, then you are far more willing to go say, go fuck yourself. And, and you're not going to put up with as much. Uh, and so that's probably the core reason why I have had falling out, because what prevents falling out in most circumstances, especially with powerful people, is you don't want to burn bridges, right? Because they might be able to help you in the future. Well, I don't give a shit about that. <laughs> I don't care because I don't trust anyone's going to help me in the future anyway. I, I don't care about these people. I don't like them. They're all frauds. And so... You only live once, and I'm going to call it like I see it. So that's probably the core reason for why that has happened. Uh, PJ asks, at this point, is there anything on God's green earth that would make you even remotely supportive of Don the Con, meaning Donald Trump, and I mean anything? Uh, well, I, I would be somewhat supportive of Donald Trump if he was running against uh, Bernie Sanders head-to-head uh, -head in a presidential campaign. As bad as Trump is, I think Bernie Sanders would probably be worse. 
That doesn't mean I would vote for Trump. I'd have to decide, not that my vote matters here in California or that my opinion matters nationally, but you know, from, from whatever it's worth, from a principle standpoint, I would probably just sit that one out. Uh, I, I, would, I might be somewhat rooting for Trump to beat Bernie Sanders, but other than Bernie Sanders and maybe a couple of the other candidates on the Democratic side, I cannot imagine anything that would have me supportive of Donald Trump. And it's not on a policy issue. It's who we are as a people standpoint. Uh, and, and, and the number one issue there is the truth. He doesn't care about the truth. He's destroyed the truth. And he's destroying uh, our system of government all for his own selfish purposes. And to me, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? By the way, I'm, I'm thinking I should probably change other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play to other than that, Mrs. Kennedy, how was the trip to Dallas, right? Have we, or is it still too soon? Is it still too soon for that? I mean, at what point are you allowed to, to make that transition from Mrs. Lincoln to Mrs. Kennedy? 1963, is it still too soon? I don't know. I get, you know Kevin, our, our producer, uh, grimaced when I said that. So maybe it is still, still too soon to go with uh, Mrs. Kennedy. Uh, how was the trip to Dallas? So maybe we'll keep it with uh, Mrs. Lincoln. But that's the point. The point is that, uh, for me, that's, that's a deal breaker. That will always be the, the biggest deal breaker with regard uh, to Donald Trump. Uh, one of the many questions regarding uh, leaving Neverland came from uh, Samoth. Samoth asked, what made you question leaving Neverland? How did that change your perspective on the allegations on Michael Jackson? What are your thoughts about the MJ allegations and how the media dealt with it? Is the media trustworthy? Well, no, the media is not trustworthy, uh, partially because they're corrupt and mostly because they're a bunch of they're also cowards and uh, they will do whatever it takes to protect their own gig, which is partially why I always get in confrontations with them because I don't give a shit about protecting a gig because I've lost more than most. And I guess what? Still standing, still surviving. And my life is just fine. Thank you. Uh, as far as what made me leaving uh, question, leaving Neverland. Well, I'm always questioning anything that doesn't make a lot of sense right off the bat. And the allegations of Wade Robson and James Safechuck are inherently suspicious because of the the timing and, and the details. But to answer the question more specifically, I would say the reaction of the moms in the first part of Leaving Neverland made no sense to me. And I'm a big believer in looking at the moms and the girlfriends of sex abuse uh, allegations, especially by men. And the thing about the moms that caught my attention right off the bat was, wait a minute, why are you speaking, especially in the case of Wade Robson's mom, Joy, why are you speaking at the beginning of this documentary with a smile and in a joyful fashion about Michael Jackson and how it is that you came to know him and your relationship with him? How does that make any fucking sense whatsoever? And, and people are really bad at this. And I mean, even the, the director of the film, I don't think fully comprehended this because he's not very bright but uh, but when you're doing the interview you're doing the interview after this is an interview after everything has allegedly happened and after she allegedly knows that her son was brutally sexually molested by michael jackson for seven years so 
This is not a contemporaneous interview. This was, this was an interview done at the time, and she doesn't know about the allegations. Okay, that would make sense. She's thrilled that you know, her son's becoming friends with Michael Jackson because she's a stage mom, and she's a big fan of Michael Jackson. But this is an interview done years later. Same with James Safechuck's mom, who did this horrible acting job pretending that she was happy when Michael Jackson died, even though there's no evidence even by James's own story, that she would have known at that time that Michael Jackson had abused her son or was a sexual abuser at all. So the mom's reactions make no sense at all. And that was the first thing that made me go, okay, this could very well be bullshit. But then there were numerous other things that, uh, that, that fit into that category. Uh, Laura asks, how did you get started working in the media? Was it in college? I, I guess so. I uh, went to Georgetown University, which at the time had the worst college radio station on the planet, which is really saying something. But I wanted to be a sportscaster. So we did uh, sportscasting, or I did sportscasting, both play-by-play uh, -play and, uh, and a talk show format on WGTB, the radio station for Georgetown University, which was literally listened to by nobody. <laughs> so, so I guess that's how I started. But then from there, I really wanted to be a TV sportscaster, and um, after getting a, uh, my first job out of college, believe it or not, was as a, an assistant freshman football coach and substitute teacher at Ocean City High School in Ocean City, New Jersey, where I was living at the time. And it was mainly because, you know, in Ocean City, New Jersey, because uh, it's a resort town, in the wintertime, there are no adults there. So, so there was no one else applying for the job. So that's how I, I got that. But then I got into sports casting as a producer and then as an on-air personality in uh, Steubenville, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia, an NBC affiliate there. And that's where my career, I guess, began as an on-air person. The Big O, I guess whose name is Jack, uh, on Twitter. He's one of my uh, biggest uh, supporters on the Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky uh, story. Uh, Jack writes, what are your plans regarding the release of the leaked source documents for the spiked Newsweek article? the remainder of the fake accusers' recordings, and the interview with uh, Gary Schultz, who one of the administrators from Penn State who uh, pled guilty to a misdemeanor in an alleged cover-up that did not happen. I wish I had an answer for that, and I certainly understand the question. In a rational world, the stuff that I still have would make a huge impact, but we don't live in that world and no one gives a shit anymore. The story is too old. The media thinks that they know what happens. The media happened. The media is invested completely in that narrative, like a five-year-old is with Santa Claus. And my strategy on this, because I know I have zero leverage and I'm not a celebrity, and even though I have the case completely cracked, and the interview with Gary Schultz is amazing. I mean, off the charts, amazing. It blows the entire story apart. The fake accuser is amazing. His recordings are amazing. The interview with him is amazing, which we've not also released. Uh, the documents prove everything that I've been saying but no one will believe them because they'll always find some rationalization for not believing because they're five-year-olds talking about Santa Claus and they don't want to believe that the fairy tale they've been told is not true. My strategy has always been to leave something in the tank in case somebody becomes interested enough in the story because there has to be exclusive new content. And, uh, and, and by the way, that's partially why I did the, the Gary Schultz interview and the fake accuser interview 
via audio as opposed to video because then if I release them, someone could still say eventually, well, here's the first video interview with this person. I have no expectation that any, that, that entity or any entity is ever going to have an interest in putting this all out there, but I can't remotely change anything on my own now. I can further prove what I believe I've already proven, and there's some people who might care about that because they still care about the truth. But as far as impacting events, I don't have the ability to do that. So, so I need to keep the option open for someone else to do that. There, I have had meetings with media, uh, I don't know if you call them outlets, but uh, certainly production companies where we've pitched story ideas. And, you know, there have been people who have loved the pitch. But the problem is this is a story where it's almost impossible to sell, especially now that people have largely forgotten about the details. And it's eight years in the past, essentially, almost. I do think that there's a chance, and this is what I've been pitching, that on the 10-year anniversary, we could get somebody interested from a, a, me, a big media outlet or production company, but I'm losing faith that that's even possible. So I, the next thing that could even remotely change the equation would be that Malcolm Gladwell has a book coming out in September where he has told me that a chapter of his book is about him revisiting this case and and to some extent, to what extent I don't know, uh, believing that what the media told us is not true and then apparently referencing my work on this. If that's close to what is actually the case, I may try to use that as traction to release some of these audio recordings that I have, the Gary Schultz interview, the fake accuser that got embraced by the main lawyer in the case and the main therapist in the case and recorded all this, many, 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 many hours of bombshell recordings proving that these people bought into a totally fake and absurd story in a way uh, over many years that uh, illustrates just what a fraud the whole thing was. So I, I can't guarantee that that's what's going to happen because I don't know what's going to be in Malcolm Gladwell's book. But, um, you know, the, bo the bottom line is, in a rational world, on my computer, I have the greatest documentary that has ever been made on a true crime story, but, no, but that no one wants uh, because we don't live in a rational world and the world is totally upside down. Uh, McNasty asks, what's the strongest evidence so far that leave, uh, finding, uh, finding Neverland, no, it's called leaving Neverland, <laughs> leaving Neverland is bullshit. You really can't do it that way. And that's part of the problem with combating these kind of stories because one fact is not going to do it. I mean, yeah, there are several that should qualify, but. Uh, but we, you know, the, the ability of the other side to rationalize is so great that you have to create an entire mural. <laughs> you know, if you think about it as a giant painting or a, a mosaic where you, you have to basically redo the entire narrative, and that takes, you know, thousands of data points. And now there are several data points that make it pretty obvious. A lot of people focused on the train station uh, story of James Safechuck, where he was abused in a, in a place that didn't exist at the time. For a lot of people, that certainly fits into that category. But there are, there are hundreds of data points that fit. And unfortunately, and this is why when you fight these kind of allegations, it's so difficult because the other side can always put their allegation in a tweet in 280 characters. And you can't do it because you need 
all these hundreds if not thousands of data points because the other side has created the rules in a way that make it impossible for you to combat them. I talked about this with uh, Tom Mesereau, Michael Jackson's criminal defense attorney, in the interview that we uh, posted on YouTube and on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we have a question, another question about uh, what's going on there with the, uh, I referenced recently that I was planning to have lunch with uh, the Michael Jackson estate or representatives of the Michael Jackson estate. Uh, they're asking, what well, did that happen? And if so, how did it go? Uh, let me give you an update on, on two things there. I mentioned that there would be an event here in Los Angeles that the estate would be part of uh, that would combat some of the allegations in Leaving Neverland that I had been asked to be part of that. Um, that's not going to happen. The event's going to happen. I'm not going to be part of it. And, and the short reason why is originally it was scheduled for June the 5th and at night, which was fine with me because I uh, have to be just outside of town in the morning of the 5th and I could get back into Los Angeles in the evening. They changed the date to the 4th, which made it almost impossible for me to make it they said it was because some, you know, prominent uh, movie director could only make it on the 4th. I don't know who that is. And I, I called the guy in charge. I said, well, look, is this worth it for me to try to move heaven and earth to, to be there? Give me some more details. And frankly, when I heard the details, I was like, okay, this is a waste of my time. Because uh, the role that they had for me was kind of actually insulting. And so I don't know if I actually said the words, go fuck yourself, but uh, th that was essentially what I said was go fuck yourself in the, in the nicest way possible because uh, it was rather insulting. Uh, not that I'm the big deal, but you know, this was going to take a lot uh, for me to move things to make it work. So there will be some sort of an event uh, on June 4th, I believe at UCLA, uh, but I will not be part of it. I wish them the best with that. Uh, as far as lunch with the representatives of the Michael Jackson estate, that uh, has been postponed, although it still appears to be imminent because one of the lawyers involved is in a trial that wasn't certain to uh, occur until it, it did uh, this week. So we did not, as previously scheduled, have lunch this week, but we are uh, still efforting to put that together within the next week or so. And if it does, I'll let you know how it goes, although I really have no idea uh, what the what the intent there is. Uh, it, there's got to be some reason why they want to meet with me. Uh, it should be interesting, so I'm more than willing to do it. Uh, if that happens, uh, I will certainly let you know uh, what transpires. Um, Maria asks, what are your views on the Me Too movement and the danger of false accusations? Well, I am not a fan of Me Too. I think Me Too is a witch hunt. Like everything else, the pendulum has swung way too far in the other direction. There was a time in which uh, accusers were not believed enough, and now they're being believed against all evidence and all logic, and uh, we're really very close to a Salem situation. And I believe that some people have already been caught up in that. Uh, and um, I think it's not good for anybody. And uh, unfortunately, the news media, I've been one of the very few people that has been willing to stand up and say, wait a minute, uh, this is dangerous, that we're going too far here. Uh, behind the scenes, a lot of people in the media agree with me, but they're afraid to say it because <laughs> they don't want the wrath of me too. Because why? It might cost them their gig. 
And that's the last thing anyone in the media wants to do. It's all about gig protection. And that's why uh, Me Too is one of the reasons why Me Too has been allowed to, to run amok and go way too far. Uh, BJ asks, who were your top three Republican picks in 2016 and why? I assume this means who I wanted to win. Um, I, I thought that the best person to win the election to beat Hillary Clinton was Scott Walker. Uh, that most people would think that's laughable now, but I believe that was vindicated by the results. The, the map that Donald Trump used to beat Hillary Clinton was exactly, I mean, exactly the map that Scott Walker, the former governor of Wisconsin, would have used to beat, Donald, to beat Hillary Clinton. Freudian slip there. Winning Wisconsin, winning Michigan, winning Pennsylvania, winning Iowa. Those are the states <clears throat> that Scott Walker would have had a huge advantage over Hillary Clinton. And I think that he would have been a, a, a very good conservative, legitimately conservative president. And uh, so he was the first guy. And by the way, there was a short period of time when the Drudge Report and the conservative media was on the Scott Walker bandwagon, but then Donald Trump entered and they abandoned him and actually put him in an impossible situation because he was creating a campaign based upon the idea that he was going to be the front runner. And then all of a sudden he wasn't. And it collapsed completely. Um, my second choice was Marco Rubio, largely because he could win Florida. And because I think he was, you know, a younger guy, good looking, uh, somewhat charismatic, uh, a legitimate conservative. It could appeal to people who were at least somewhat moderate. Uh, I thought that Marco Rubio would have beaten Hillary Clinton. And I was vindicated on that as well. Because when you look at the vote totals in Florida, Marco Rubio, against a much better candidate than Hillary Clinton, got more votes than Donald Trump in Florida in the 2016 election. Not in the primary, in the general election. So Marco Rubio would have won, in my belief. After that, I really didn't care about much of it. No one else really excited me. But I wanted just someone who was conservative and could win. I did not believe that Donald Trump was conservative or could win. <laughs> he turns out he could win. I do still to this day do not believe he was really conservative, although certainly some of the things that he has done as president, specifically in the realm of judges and somewhat in the realm of tax cuts, have been, in fact, conservative. Um, someone uh, who goes by pop culture theology asks, if you had to vote today for a 2020 candidate, who would it be and why? I, I'm not sure what that means. I have said on the Individual One podcast numerous times that if Joe Biden is the Democratic candidate, and he doesn't pick a complete nut job for his vice presidential candidate and everything else stays the same, I would much prefer him to beat Donald Trump, although I am no fan of Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden is a gap machine and a buffoon, but at least he's somewhat normal, <laughs> and he's probably going to run only for one term, and it's the only shot we have at a reset button for the insanity that has been the Trump administration. Uh, Carl writes, your article on the long-term damage to the GOP by Trump was spot on, what will the fallout be for Dems by their lack of action and leadership in the face of such adversity? Are we headed towards a legit third party? I don't think we're there yet. I mean, I think this, this person is referencing why no impeachment yet. And uh, I, I do think that there's a balancing act, a danger here for Democrats to not go far enough, as just as much as there is for them to, to go too far in combating Donald Trump as far as the third party. I've never been a big believer that a third party is viable. There's too much of a monopoly uh, by the, the two major parties. And while the Trump phenomenon has created some openings, I still don't think that it has fundamentally changed uh, that reality. 
Uh, Scott asks, what will conservatism look like in terms of actual policy relative to government's role, meaning deficits, trade, foreign affairs, immigration, and climate change, when the GOP is in the minority, meaning, I guess, after Donald Trump? That's a great question. I don't have an answer to that. I think a lot of it depends on how this all goes down. Does Trump get crushed or does Trump barely lose in 2020 in a disputed election? Or does Trump win re-election? If Trump wins re-election, I think Trump is the party regardless, forever and ever, because that will be seen as the, as the path to victory. And will, uh, with a re-election, it'll be a couple of decades by the time, in between the time that a legitimate conservative ran on the Republican ticket and uh, ran even theoretically again after Trump. And that's a huge amount of time. A lot of people have died. A lot of people will have become voting eligible. And so I I really think it's an impossible question to answer because we don't know how this is all going to end. You need to know the nature of the ending before you know what the aftermath is going to be. Joy, who is a big supporter uh, of uh, everything I do and much appreciated, asks, have you contacted Britney Spears about her possible support of your work debunking Leaving Neverland following her Instagram post of her dancing to Michael Jackson using Wade Robson's choreography? (laughs) Well, the subject matter is is very on point. However, me contacting Britney Spears, let me see. You know what? I had her cell phone number in my old phone, but I forgot to transfer it into my new phone. So darn, I don't think I'm going to be able to uh, contact Britney Spears. But if you have Britney Spears contact information, I would be happy to, to make that outreach to her. She doesn't live that far from where I live, apparently, but she's she might not even be allowed to leave where she is, uh, depending on who you believe. The more important part here is that what Britney Spears did this week in a rational world should have changed the narrative about leaving Neverland. But nobody in the media picked up on it because, one, they're in the tank for this false narrative, and two, because they're... I mean, so let's review. I talked about this last week. It's all about political cover. It's all about getting traction. And this is, this is the evolution of how this happened. Boy George goes on Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen. They're both gay. Boy George has doubts about leaving Neverland. He doesn't get destroyed by Andy Cohen. My guess is Madonna either saw that or, or heard about it. It's a very popular show among celebrities. Madonna comes out with the Boy Boy George cover and says, you know, basically she doesn't necessarily believe leaving Neverland. And then just after that, Britney Spears, who's embroiled in this controversy over whether or not she's ever going to perform again, she posts a video which appears to have been somewhat old, which I think actually further facilitates this theory of what she was really doing. Because apparently this was taped in March. Well, what happened in March? The Leaving Neverland story was huge in March. And here, here she is, Britney Spears, who worked with Wade Robson, had an affair with Wade Robson. She posts a video of her dancing with Wade Robson's choreography to Michael Jackson and, and in the Instagram post refers to it as Michael and me. Now, let's use our brains, folks. Britney Spears is saying... Wade Robson is full of shit without saying that Wade Robson is full of shit. That's what she's doing. But TMZ did a story on this and they never even, and this is something that TMZ would usually love. They would, this is what they do, reading between the lines and reading the tea leaves and this kind of stuff, theorizing about this kind of stuff. And they didn't do any of it. 
because either they're that dumb or they're that much in the tank for leaving Neverland or both. But I did find that the Britney Spears post was very uh, significant. Skull Bandits on Twitter asks, Zig, is technology ruining golf? Uh, yes, <laughs> technology is ruining golf. Uh, we're seeing it at the PGA Championship with Brooks Kepka, who uh, at this point is uh, seven shots ahead going into the final round on what was uh, thought to be a very difficult golf course. It is for everybody else, not for him. Uh, I have been saying for a very long time that technology is destroying golf. Tiger uh, cracked golf, and maybe put a crack in the foundation, but Brooks Kepka is in danger of destroying golf. And it's basically becoming a video game. And it, it, you know, one of the things about golf used to be that, one, you could relate to the players because they looked like you. And, uh, you know, unlike other sports like football, basketball, and baseball. And baseball is the same way. You know, baseball used to have guys who looked like normal human beings. No longer. No longer. You cannot relate. I mean, even shortstops. When I grew up, Larry Bow, five foot ten, 165 pounds at most, was my hero because I was a shrimpy little kid growing up in Philadelphia. Larry Boa could never play Major League Baseball today. He was a very good Major League Baseball player, won a World Series, multiple-time All-Star. He wouldn't even get signed today because the players are that much more athletic, they're that much bigger, the emphasis on power. Well, it's the same way in golf now. And Brooks Kepka is a beast, and he's amazing. Part of why he's able to do this is because the technology allows him to wail away with a driver in a way that previously would not have been possible because he would have been playing from the trees all day long. Now he's playing from the fairway or just in the rough, and he's strong enough to get it out of the rough. And uh, to me, it's boring. It, it, the, the, the fear factor is totally gone, which gets you into the mental aspect of the game. Now – you might as well just hook up the best players to a TrackMan device in the range, which is basically just a computer to say how far they're hitting it, how straight they're hitting it, what their spin rate is. And after that, you know, you take the top guys, top 10 to 20 guys on the TrackMan, and now it's just a putting contest. Whoever's putting best that week wins. I don't find that that interesting. And uh, so I think golf is, is in the process of getting ruined. Many of the great courses are not usable anymore because they're too short, and, and mostly you can't relate to this anymore. Golf used to be the most relatable sport. Now the average guy cannot relate to it at all, and it's only going to get worse because the Brooks Kepkas of the world are going to be the norm going forward. And in retrospect, I think part of Tiger's greatness was that he was basically the first Brooks Kepka going up against a bunch of guys who were just normal Joes with, uh, with bellies. And not, to, not fully, but there was some truth to that. He was basically, you know, Tiger Woods was almost like a uh, Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future. <laughs> he was Brooks Kepka put into the world 20 years ago, 22 years ago, and dominated. Now Brooks Kepka is close to doing the same thing, at least in major championships, that Tiger Woods was under uh, much different circumstances because the competition is a lot stronger, a lot deeper. Um, but I think some of the charm of the game is definitely gone. Um Andrew asks, when Trump is gone, will the GOP feel a need to rehab itself or will it continue Trumpism indefinitely? Kind of already answered that with regard to it depends on how it ends. Depends totally on how it ends and what the narrative is uh, at that point. 
Tommy asks, what are your thoughts on the Ohio State situation? The Ohio State situation is that uh, we talked about this on a couple different uh, podcasts, I guess it was last year, where uh, Dr. Richard Strauss, who was a doctor, has been dead for a long time, was a team doctor for uh, athletics at Ohio State, who, um, you may recall, this got uh, embroiled with Jim Jordan, the Republican congressman who's a Trump sycophant, I mean, the biggest Trump sycophant there is now. Uh, and, and Jim Jordan was a wrestler and a coach at Ohio State. And basically what happened was a couple of guys tried to claim they got media coverage for their allegations against Dr. Strauss by claiming that Jim Jordan knew about this. And I did a lot of research into this, interviewed several people, including the main accuser, talked to him for like two hours on the phone, and he's a complete nut job. I mean, total, complete nut job. Well, this week there was a a law firm that completed an investigation that was commissioned by Ohio State that shockingly found that 177 athletes had been, quote, sexually abused by Dr. Richard Strauss decades ago at Ohio State. Now, this sounds like, oh, my gosh. Okay, let me tell you what really happened here. And unfortunately, this is the way the media works. Once a media narrative gets momentum, especially in this realm, look the fuck out. Let me tell you what really happened with the Dr. Strauss situation. And I feel very confident about this. Dr. Strauss was a gay doctor, right? And, the, and most, of, most of this allegedly occurred in the 1980s. And so he's a gay doctor and he's uh, treating uh, Ohio State athletes, specifically wrestlers. And he was, everyone knew he was gay. He was ogling naked wrestlers. He uh, might have been holding on to their testicles a little too long while giving them the cough test. And I can guarantee you, especially since his first name was Richard, you got a gay doctor named Richard. So Dick Strauss. All right, so, so think about this. You're in the 80s. You got a bunch of uh, Ohio State wrestlers who, who are uh, made to feel let's say at worst uncomfortable by this gay doctor feeling up their testicles, giving the cough test and making no bones about the fact that he's liking looking at you naked. All right. I can guarantee you that this becomes a joke, a joke within the Ohio state wrestling community. There may have been even some Ohio state wrestlers who endured more ogling or if you want to call it abuse, whatever in exchange for, extra drugs from Dr. Strauss. I've been told that, although I've never been able to confirm that, but that was told to me pretty reliably. So you have this doctor who's gay. Everyone knows about it. It's seen mostly as a joke. He did things that were inappropriate and wrong, but there was never any criminal charge, no civil complaint. There, to, to our knowledge, there was never a complaint that made it all the way up the food chain. And he dies new, many years ago. All right, he's been dead since I think like 2005 or something like that. And so nothing ever happened here because this is just one of those things that it was a joke. And back then, you know what? <laughs> Guys just put up with this bullshit and no one wants to make a stink about it. And it's pretty harmless because there wasn't, it's not like there was actual sex involved here. But now, all these years later, post me to everything counts as sex abuse. So here's what happens. The two guys at the heart of this, the one that I told you about that I interviewed for a couple of hours and 
and did not find to be credible, and I found him to be insane. And another guy who I bizarrely have a connection to because he's from Steubenville, Ohio, and has a horrendous criminal background, including having stolen millions of dollars from his own clients uh, in a federal fraud case that he pled guilty to. Here's what happened. These two guys see what happened, what happened at Michigan State with the Larry Nassar case, all these gymnasts being sexually abused and getting paid millions of dollars for it. And these scam artists try to say, well, wait a minute, some of the same stuff happened to us by Dr. Richard Strauss way back in the day. And they're not getting anywhere. So then they decide, you know what? Here's a story that the media will really be interested in. Let's accuse Jim Jordan because he's a Republican congressman. The media hates uh, Republican congressman. He's a big Trump supporter. So let's get the media interested by going after Jim Jordan. And it works. NBC falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. And so once now the story is out there, all of a sudden people start jumping on the bandwagon. Why? Because they see money. And let's be clear, some of this stuff probably actually did happen. I'm not doubting, and I have never defended Dr. Strauss, except I don't think there's any evidence that Dr. Strauss had actual sex act with one of these wrestlers or these athletes. So, so now you have this media momentum. What is Ohio State going to do? Well, Ohio State is a state-run academic institution, which means it's as politically correct as possible. So they hand this off, and they, they got to do an investigation. So they hire these people to do an investigation. Well, what's the incentive of those doing the investigation and those they're asking questions of? Well, there's no incentive for anybody to defend Dr. Strauss because he's dead. There's no way, even incentive for anybody to defend the administration at the time because they're all gone. This was 30, 35 years ago. So the, the investigation asks all these guys. You, you start to bring in hundreds of former athletes, mostly wrestlers from Ohio State. And you ask them, so did Dr. Strauss ever look at you in a way that made you feel uncomfortable? Did he ever grab your balls in a way that made you feel uncomfortable? Anything happen in the realm of what we now perceive to be sex abuse ever happened? Put yourself in their shoes, folks. You get to anonymously say... Yeah, yeah, that happened. It made me feel uncomfortable, and I'm pretty mad about it now. And you get to do that with no repercussions. Strauss is dead. There's no even proof any of this occurred. But you now know there's money on the table because of what happened at Michigan State. So, of course, all these you're going to find 177 people that are going to say, yeah, this gay doctor made me feel uncomfortable. So then they put out a report, and they label it sex abuse. Whether you want to define it as that, I, it certainly wasn't at the time. Maybe it is today. Maybe everything is sex abuse today. But that, that back then it was a joke and treated as a joke. But then now you get reports, 177 athletes sexually abused by Dr. Strauss back in the day. Well, now I'm sure Ohio State's going to cave and give away free money because it's state money. It's not even a private institution. And there's probably some insurance company involved in this. So... This is all bullshit. It's all bullshit, but this is how it happens, and you can't combat it because once it gets a momentum, there's no stopping it because no one will stand up and say, wait a minute, can we use our damn brains here? And no one will ever get to the details, which is, you mean there was no actual sex? It's not like, you know, there's any proven allegation there was an actual sex act here. Most of this is in the realm of 
stuff that would have been considered in the 1980s a joke. Inappropriate, wrong. But what's interesting to me about all this is the media is a little bit in a jam because some of the allegations here are a little homophobic. So the media is a little bit confused. <laughs> Wait a minute. We got a gay doctor who's ogling gay male athletes. Hmm. It's This one, when they put it into their outrage calculator, they're not sure what the outcome should be. So the media coverage of this has not been over the top, nor should it be. Because, frankly, none of this is surprising and none of this is that big of a deal, especially with a guy who's been dead for 13, 14 years. Um, all right. Stafina asks, if you met Dan Reed, the director of Leaving Neverland, what would be your first question you would ask him about the movie? Well, the first question I would ask him is, did you know about Brandy Jackson? Brandy Jackson, who we did the first interview post-Leaving Neverland with on this podcast, which I urge you to check out if you've not done so already. She is the niece of Michael Jackson. She dated Wade Robson for seven or eight years, including two years where he claims now he was being abused by Michael Jackson. How in the world is she not in your movie? My guess is Wade Robson never even told Dan Reed about Brandy Jackson. And my guess is based upon the pathetic nature of his research, he didn't even know about her. Now, he claims that she's irrelevant, but uh, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. I mean, anybody who knows that uh, anything about humanity would know that that, first of all, leaving that out is, is consciousness of guilt. If you have nothing, if you have nothing to hide, if you're Wade Robson, you would mention this. Oh my God, the most amazing part about this whole thing is I'm dating Michael Jackson's niece while I'm being abused by Michael Jackson. How come you don't mention that, Wade? Because he's afraid of it. Because he knows Brandy's telling the truth. Brandy is far more credible than anyone here. And that none of the damn story makes any sense. In, flat, in fact, it's... It's just flat out ridiculous. The whole thing is. All right. Uh, let me see. We're running out of time here. So, I, in fact, we only have a, a few minutes left in the hour. So I'll try as hard as I can to answer as many questions as possible. But uh, with the understanding that uh, I may have to do another one of these Ask John Anythings very soon in the future. Um, let's see. Uh, this question from uh, an unnamed person on Twitter. Knowing what you know now about Michael Jackson, has your view on him and the allegations against him changed? Uh, yeah, because uh, I, I covered his trial for uh, as a radio talk show host at KFI in Los Angeles, and I presumed he was guilty. I didn't feel that strongly about it. In fact, I remember feeling like, oh, man, we got we to gotta do more Michael Jackson coverage today because it was kind of – ambiguous and boring and um i wasn't that shocked by the verdict nor was i that outraged by the verdict because it, frankly they didn't it didn't feel like they had proven their case but that didn't mean that i thought he was innocent now getting into the details it everywhere you turn in this case it's just bullshit nothing you've been told is actually real or proven or even true at all and when the idea that wade robson and james Savechuck are the most prominent accusers of Michael Jackson? To me, that shows you're innocent because these guys are just not to be believed. They're a joke. And if he really was guilty, the evidence at this point, especially post-leaving Neverland, would be overwhelming. That's the part of this that no one wants to think about. Where are all the other accusations now that Wade and James have come forward? If, this, if the Michael Jackson narrative is real, there should be dozens and dozens of allegations, but there's not because it probably never happened. I think Michael Jackson was... Somebody who was basically tortured by fame. I think he's. I, I. I. I think that he was mostly what his family says he was. Now there's still some things that make me 
a, a little concerned. I question, but by and large, gun to my head, I would say Michael Jackson never sexually abused anybody. Uh, Bella asks, how do you feel about the MJ fan community after your interactions? I find it odd and telling that Oprah neither mentioned her previous interview with Matt Sandusky to Wade or James, nor had him in the audience. Did you? Yes. <laughs> Exclamation point. Yes. Uh, let me first answer the question about the NJ fam community. I have been very impressed. Uh, they are not as perceived by Dan Reed. They're very fact-focused. Um, there's obviously some nut jobs like in any group, but when you consider how large the group is, I have been amazed by how substantive and respectful the responses have been and how engaged and passionate it has been. I have to say the number one impact this has had on me is that it has given me an even more dim view of the Penn State community than I currently had because uh, I, I had been – disappointed by the way the Penn State community, especially Joe Paterno fans, react to that whole situation. Not all of them, but a good portion of them. Now, after this, I have disdain for the majority of Penn State people. What a bunch of wussy morons. Uh, because my, uh, Joe Paterno wasn't even accused of anything uh, sexual. I mean, Joe Paterno should have easily been exonerated and would have been if the Penn State fan base had reacted anything close to the way that the Michael Jackson fan base had reacted, and it pisses me off. As far as Oprah not mentioning Matt Sandusky, I find that to be incredibly telling. And I've always theorized that um, Oprah, who interviewed Matt Sandusky, did not believe Matt Sandusky. I did a, did a very extensive video, which you can find on YouTube, which is titled The Overwhelming Case That Matt Sandusky Lied to Oprah Winfrey. I urge you to check it out because one of the answers that Matt Sandusky gave, in fact, the only tough question he got uh, from Oprah Winfrey was near the end when he was asked, how do we know you're telling the truth? And he completely and totally melted down. I mean, it was comical. It was like a Saturday Night Live sketch. They used to do, you know, 60 Minutes and... And uh, Mike Wallace uh, interviewing people in the in interviewee sweating profusely and smoking a cigarette. I mean, it, it was actually worse than that. And I know Matt Sandusky is lying. I'm positive of it. It is obvious to anyone who's looked at any of the facts. I mean, he is worse than Wade Robson and James Safechuck. Matt Sandusky, one of uh, Jerry Sandusky's adopted kids. And the idea that she never mentions him or put him in the audience with all these other sex abuse survivors is very, very telling because it was a very high-profile interview at the time. My gut instinct told me Oprah didn't really believe him, and, uh, and that certainly is consistent with that uh, theory because otherwise, my gosh, I mean, it's a perfect uh, uh, dovetail situation. The allegations are almost exactly uh, the same, and Matt Sandusky was nowhere to be seen with regard to leaving Neverland. Uh, Kenya asks, name three topics of most interest to, to you at the current moment that you'll be spending a lot of time learning about and briefly explain why they are important to you. Thanks. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure my answer is 
uh, going to be conducive to what uh, the the uh, questioner is looking for. Because when I was thinking about the the answer to this, let's see, what are the topics I'm most focused on right now learning about? Number one is uh, the Star Wars uh, movies, because my uh, seven year, almost seven year old daughter Grace has become a Star Wars fanatic, and I've never even liked Star Wars. I thought the Star Wars movies are very overrated. It's very obvious that George Lucas was. He's making it up as he goes and and and. That always bothered me from a movie-making standpoint, but now it's really bothering me as a father because I have a daughter who's obsessed with Star Wars, which starts with you know episode four, five, and six, then it goes to one, two, and three, then it goes back to seven, eight, and nine, and none of it makes any damn sense because George Lucas was... He's making it up as he goes along. So now I have to, on a regular basis, hey, Daddy, can I ask you a question? Yeah? Why uh, does Darth Vader not know that Princess Leia is his daughter? Well, do you want the real answer or do you want the answer from the movie? Because <laughs> the real answer is George Lucas didn't know what the fuck he was doing and was just making it all up as he goes along. And then when the movie started, when the movie in the number four starts, he doesn't think of Princess Leia as Darth Vader's daughter. He adds that later. Same thing with, with uh, Luke and Leia being uh, brother and sister. And now I gotta, I gotta spend a ridiculous amount of time explaining a movie I don't even like. From a, you know, I, th I consider George Lucas to be dumb. You ever just seen an interview with George Lucas? He is a dumb person who somehow got incredibly lucky making the, you know, the most uh, lucrative uh, movie franchise probably of all time in some ways. And so, uh, yeah. So I've been spending a ridiculous amount of time studying up on Star Wars. I. Uh, Similarly, with my two-year-old daughter who's obsessed with the Toy Story trilogy. So I, I can tell you everything you want to know about the Toy Story 1, 2, and 3. By the way, that actually makes, at least makes some sense. There's a, there's a lot more evidence that they knew what they were doing and making Toy Story 1, 2, and 3 than there is with the Star Wars movies. And now there's Toy Story 4 coming out, which I'm sure is going to blow the whole thing apart. Because Toy Story 3 was one of the greatest movies of all time. And they should have kept it as it is, but there was too much money on the table. So they're making Toy Story 4. And then I guess the third story that I'm, I'm now sinking my teeth back into is the Brian Banks story, speaking of movies. I'll give you a heads up on this. Uh, for those who are have really followed me, and this won't surprise people, but, uh, and I don't want to get too much into the details right now, but there's a movie coming out in August called literally Brian Banks. And the story is allegedly of this uh, black athlete football player from Southern California, uh, Long Beach, California, who allegedly was uh, uh, convicted of a rape he did not commit, and the uh, accuser recanted, and he lost his football career, and then he got a tryout with the Atlanta Falcons, and now he's working with the Falcons' uh, front office, and uh, they're now making a major movie. Morgan Freeman, Greg Kinnear, and it's coming out in August. Well, I researched this because I thought, wow, what a great story. I want to do a documentary about this. This was several years ago, like 2013. And I, I spoke to the lawyer of the accuser. I spoke to the principal of the school where this happened. I, I spoke to other people that were tangentially involved in this. I researched the reporting at the time. The story is bullshit. It's bullshit. He, I, I, there's all sorts of reasons I can tell you it was bullshit, but at best, at best, Best. The Brian Banks story is this. Brian Banks had sex with a girl, whether it was consensual or not, who the hell knows, 
on campus while he was at summer school. He got caught. He was getting expelled, which ended his football career, period. No USC scholarship at that time. It's done. It's over. You're expelled from school going into your senior year. It's over. And I believe there's a there's a pretty good amount of evidence that he actually coerced or even uh, offered to pay for the accuser recanting uh, her allegation of rape, which he confessed to. He confessed to it with a black female lawyer who's now a judge. And now Hollywood's completely rewriting the story and making a major motion picture called Brian Banks. And it's quite possible that I might find myself at the premiere of the movie Brian Banks, uh, assuming that they don't find out who I am <laughs> before, before that happens. All right. Um, you know, I still got some other questions here that I want to get to, but I'm going to save them because we're, we're – I don't have enough time to get to all of them. And um, I, I, I'm going to end with this one since I, I referenced my daughter. Uh, Beth uh, asks, how are you going to raise your girls to be independent, strong women with a voice? Uh, th I have a lot of concerns about uh, where my life is heading from here and you know what's going to happen with my family and the country and all that. The least of my concerns is whether or not my girls are going to be independent, strong women with a voice. In fact, if anything, they are uh, too independent, too strong, and have too much of a voice. Let me give you an example. Um, my almost seven-year-old daughter, she turns seven next week. In fact, she might be on the podcast. We'll see. We're, negotiations are ongoing as to whether or not we're going to get an interview uh, with uh, Grace Ziegler on her seventh birthday. Grace has absolutely no respect for me whatsoever. Uh, she calls me an idiot all the time. Uh, she <clears throat> has no problem expressing her opinions on anything. Uh, you know, I, I am I am basically dirt to Grace, uh, despite my best efforts to be a uh, a father who uh, you know holds the line and and tries to enforce discipline and all that. Grace has no problem effectively telling me to go fuck myself. None. Uh, so, so Grace is going to be strong. She's going to be independent, and she's going to have a voice. If anything, we need to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, and I'm all for independent, strong women with a voice, but it's got to be within <laughs> some some semblance uh, of uh, rationality here. My two-year-old daughter, Diana, appears to be maybe even stronger and more independent and with a greater voice than uh, than Grace. Let me give you an example. Diana, who you know just turned two, she's speaking a lot for a two-year-old, but you know still not fully formed sentences or very few for fully formed sentences. Uh, this this is routine. This this happened the other day, so she's playing with her computer that lets her count and also lets her do the alphabet, and so she's playing the alphabet part. You know A B C D E, and so I'm I'm singing along with her A B C D, and she looks up with me uh, up at me. And with a straight face, she says, shut up, shut up. I'm like, okay, all right, we're in big trouble here. My two-year-old just told me to shut up because I was singing along with the ABCs. She also very routinely uh, will say I'm doing something that's stupid, stupid, you're stupid. So my two-year-old tells me to shut up and calls me stupid all the time. So, um, Beth, I, you don't have to worry about Diana and Grace 
growing up to be independent, strong women with a voice. Thanks uh, to everyone who uh, submitted their questions for Ask John Anything. As I said, there are still several that I want to get to. Maybe we'll do that depending on whether or not we can get an interview with Grace next week. <laughs> on the podcast, uh, but I do appreciate everyone uh, participating, and we'll probably try to do this more often in the future. As as always the case, I ask only two things of you. Number one, please make sure you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, or, or Facebook in the English language, word of mouth, what have you. Please do that. That's much appreciated. Number two, do yourself a favor, and if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, one, two, one, two.